Hello everyone and welcome to Autism Stories where we connect you with amazing people that help autistic teens and adults become more independent and successful. I'm your host Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. Figuring out who we are and what we want is a lifelong quest. On this episode of Autism Stories, we talk with Sarah Earhart about how being diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder led her to start her blog, Seeking Sarah, and help to give her a much better understanding of who she is. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Whenever someone has done something I've wanted to do, I always want to ask questions and learn from their experience. And you're one of those people because you have spent some time in Japan, which I've always wanted to do. How did that experience come about and where should I visit in Japan when I eventually go there? Sure. Um, so I was very lucky when I was in middle school. Two of my teachers in my grade got a grant to take a few students to Japan for a field study. And that was a two-week field study. I was lucky um, to be one of the people that they chose to go. And I just really clicked with the culture and the atmosphere Um which now I realize partly was a sensory thing and partly was being a foreigner in Japan, you often are excused social missteps because it's sort of assumed that, well, you're foreign, so you don't understand um, the norms. So that was very freeing for me. Um, and then I ended up going back for a study abroad. And then most recently, I lived in Japan for a few years. Um, and that's actually something I write about on my blog about why Japan really clicks well with me and why I've succeeded um, whenever I live there, more so than usually I do in the U.S. even. Um, and then as far as where you should go, I would say if you're comfortable driving there, exploring some of the countryside is very cool, especially um, Aomori and Yamagata, uh, Yamaguchi, um, and areas in like Fukuoka and such. And then when you were... You returned to the United States at 27. You were diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. How did that process evolve for you? So it was actually while I was still in Japan that I started to kind of wonder. Um, over the years, I've looked a bit at symptom and trait lists and gone, no, 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 that's not me. Like, don't, I don't know why I keep coming back to this. It's never right. And then I stumbled upon Amethyst Ask an Autistic videos, and they were just so wonderful in those videos showing more to being autistic than those trait lists online that are generally, um, you know, white cis men that show up when the, <laughs> with those traits, you know. Um, so I found their videos, and then from there started to research and then everything just started to snowball. And I was away from my family and friends for the most part. And, like, I need I need some way to, 
to like get this out. So I started to journal and that turned into once I came back, like I need to get this out more. Like I, I need to figure this out. So I, um, while I was in Japan, I was lucky enough to see a therapist, uh, fluent in Japanese and English. So she sort of tentatively was like, yeah, I think you actually are autistic. I, I found this article here and this um, publication here and you match this, yada, yada. So when I came back, I was able to present a therapist here with a note that said, this was my finding, this needs to be explored. Um, so in many respects, I was very, very lucky to find people who were willing to put in the research to look into basically non-male um, autistic people or people that didn't necessarily have the classic traits um, that they would have studied in school. Uh, so yeah, long story short, I connected with two people very luckily that were able to help me out. I think as humans, it's so important that we figure out who who we are and being on that path of self-discovery is really essential. You've done exactly that just with your wonderful blog, Seeking Sarah and Autistic's Journey. You talk on your blog a bit about masking. For those that may not be familiar, what is masking and what were the type of masks that you would wear? Um, well, thank you, first of all, for complimenting my blog. So I can only speak for myself, but the more I started to reflect on myself and my childhood and bullying over the years, the more I realized that not only do I wear a mask a lot of the time, I wear perhaps layers of masks, and that's something that I've written about in the intro to my blog, that are these layers of masks or maybe a host of masks that I switch out when there's like a role that I need to fulfill and I'm still sort of exploring that and I do think that people of all neurologies do that to a certain extent but for me masking is suppressing my need to stim forcing myself to go into situations socially that I don't feel comfortable in um, ignoring sensory overload and just sort of powering through things that are not part of my nature, perhaps. And I don't want to confuse this with like te like testing my ability to like grow and change. That's not what masking is to me. Masking is like hiding that I'm in pain and pretending that I understand what's mm -hmm. happening in a conversation and trying to make sure that I can keep verbalizing. So it's a very, it's like a, the opposite of self-care in, in a lot of ways. It's denying who I am and pretending that everything's fine. Um, and so I've been really trying to tackle that but it's, uh, it's not always easy to spot when I'm doing it, and it's not always safe or practical to stop masking to a certain extent. In talking with many others, they've 
told me that masking, just like you said, is the opposite of self-caring, can often lead to meltdowns or shutdowns. Is that the Uh experience that you've had? Definitely, because I was the kind of kid who teachers might have thought I was maybe a little quirky or, um, I don't know, geeky or nerd or shy or all of those labels, but once I got home, and all of that masking would finally lift was when the anxiety just like hit the roof. And I was like, I can't, I, I, and you know, my functioning, it, it just, <laughs> I don't even know really how to explain. It's just this pure exhaustion and like, Nope, I can't, I can't do it anymore. I can't, this too much and I'm tired And all day I've had this mask and I just need to be me. Um, Fortunately for me, my home environment was one where we're all introverts and um, everyone understood, like, you need some time to decompress and it's okay to go in your room and, and read a book and listen to music and just, like, recharge. It seems that meltdowns are talked about a lot more often than shutdowns. So what is your definition of a shutdown? Well, I think that that makes a lot of sense. My distinction between meltdown and shutdowns um, that helps me to understand it is I see a meltdown as um, fight on the fight or flight response, whereas I see a shutdown as sort of the flight um, in the sense that the meltdown is this external, usually loud battle for control in your own head sometimes and it's very obviously happening where the shutdown is this internalized feeling and both are terrible. I experience a lot more shutdowns than I do meltdowns. A shutdown to me is where usually everything in my mind either becomes this buzzing or numb feeling and It's like hitting the switch on a computer for me where I'm going, 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 going. And then at some point, my my mind and my body and my soul are just like, "Uh uh-uh, I'm done. And it's just sort of a, I mean, shutdown is the best word for it, right? Mm -hmm. It's just this collapse of ability to keep masking and collapse of ability to keep functioning. But I think we don't talk about shutdowns as often because they're not always as obvious because especially for me as a kid, a shutdown just looks like, Oh, she's quiet and like contemplating maybe, or um, (laughs) if someone did notice something was up, maybe it was like, Oh, maybe she's anxious, you know? So it's very internalized for me. Now comparing shutdowns to meltdowns, what would you say are the similarities as well as the differences? Sure. So I would say that for myself, because I can only really speak for myself, they both come about for very similar reasons. And the difference really in my experience is I shut down when I am in public and I melt down when I am at home. There are a few exceptions to this. Um, I had a very bad public meltdown probably like a year and a half ago at a hospital, at like a clinic. And 
So I would say that both come from just being too strong in a too stressful, anxiety-producing, sensory overload environment, um, and neither are a choice. Some people can choose to kind of not not choose to time them, but like if I know I'm getting to that point where I'm like, I'm going to melt down, I will try to get home or to a bathroom or somewhere sort of safe, but that's not always the case. I know you've talked about on your blog about the five pillars that apply mm-hmm. to when shutdowns and meltdowns occur. What, yes. what are those five pillars and what strategies have worked for you in replenishing those pillars? Yeah, so one that is like the number one thing that's really, really helped me. Um, those five pillars are mental, physical, emotional, social, and sensory. And this was pointed out to me by my therapist, who is wonderful and really helps me to think of strategies. And she said, you have these five pillars that are holding you up. You go throughout the day, certain situations will take a toll on these pillars. So say you're at work and the lights are fluorescent and one of them is flickering and there's a meeting at the desk next to you and it's really loud and yada yada. So the sensory one is already, you know, it's going down a little bit, but you're still solid. Um, And then say your boss comes over and yells at you. So your emotional one is probably like halfway down now. Um, you know, say that you're, you have a really bad headache that day. Physical is down a bit too. So she sort of helps me to envision those pillars are holding you up and a good balance for your, for yourself. And once a few of them get a little teetery, that's when a small thing, a seemingly small thing can become what makes the house fall down. Um, So she talks a lot about, well, if you know that you're in this situation, what can you do to fill that pillar back up? Um, Another analogy is video game analogy. Since I play games a lot, I like this one with health meters going down. And so if you can visualize, okay, well, you know, I worked out a lot today and my body is hurting or, well, something sad just happened to me or I'm just feeling down today. You can look at those bars and say, well, about about how low are those? Okay, well, all right, emotional is down. I need to go and text a friend or, oh, sensory is down. I need to go ahead and stim and get that to fill back up. These pillars give you structure in and ways to kind of um, be in a better place. Yeah, they and, and it helps me to find patterns in things. So if I go out to a social event consistently and I just feel completely depleted that night consistently like each week, it helps me to be like, oh, I either need to not go to that event or only go for a part of the time or talk to people there about how I can have a more accessible time at that event. Um, So especially with people who have a hard time regulating that kind of stuff and figuring out the patterns and deciding, like, what do I feel? Like, why am I so tired? Um, For me personally, those five categories have really helped me to figure out the patterns of meltdowns and shutdowns. 
And has that helped you to have those situations where you might normally have a meltdown or shutdown less likely to occur? Oh, yeah, definitely. I don't generally have a lot of meltdowns, um, maybe like a few a year at most. But definitely my shutdowns have become a lot fewer and far between now that I sort of see those pillars in my mind and go, okay, let's assess what am I feeling. So I believe we are a collection of our choices. And one choice you made was creating your blog. You could have went down the path of self-discovery privately and not shared this process for, for the entire world to see. Why did you ultimately dis- decide to uh, share this with the world and start your blog? So that's a great question. Um, so originally, I was teaching in Japan, and that required a lot of masking day in and day out. And I was just entering this huge burnout phase in my life where it was becoming more difficult to mask and my pillars were, I didn't know, I hadn't encountered the idea of pillars, but if I had, I would see that they were all kind of rickety. And so I started jotting these things down of self-discovery. And then when I got back and got officially diagnosed, it was like something was eating me from the inside out because here are all these things that I'm realizing about myself and not an hour goes by at that time when I'm not thinking, that's why I did that as a kid or that makes so much sense. That's why I'm struggling with that activity. And so to have all of these moments of aha and self-reflection and not really be able to share that with people was very isolating and it increasingly felt like I was not only lying to myself but to my loved ones which I'm sure is a contra yeah I I don't know I I think people might be a little upset about me saying that I was lying um, because masking is more of a survival technique Um, but it just I didn't feel like I was being genuine with who I am and how I was interacting with people. So I ended up sort of typing up a few things to look at maybe doing a book. But that's another long haul sort of thing. And I was needing immediate support from family and friends. So I turned to the blog. And at first it wasn't public. I was just putting a few blogs up here and there, um, getting sort of ready to think, well, this is going to go live and people are going to see this and I need to be ready for that before I do it. Do I really want to do this? Is it going to hurt my employment opportunities? Um, is this going to cost me friends? What is my family going to think? All that sort of stuff was going through my mind. Um, but ultimately I came down to three reasons for the blog that helped me decide. Um, One was to unravel who I am authentically. Two was to give people on the outside, especially family and friends, an idea of what's going on behind all of the masking that I've been doing. 
And then the third was I just really, really needed to find other people that thought like me desperately. I was so lonely and isolated and just going through something that I, I needed to share. It wasn't ultimately really like a choice. I feel like it was this necessity that I just have to. I can't keep going like this. So I wouldn't say it was anything like a brave, like, I'm going to help people around the world. It was more like a, for me, I need this. I can't. (laughs) So you were looking for a sense of community. Yeah, that was a huge component. And I honestly expected to find like a few people, but um, Twitter, Twitter is where the autistics are at. (laughs) (laughs) Why do you think that's such a important platform for autistic people? I would say social media in general and internet anything in general for a lot of us is a safer space in some respects in the sense that it's a social thing that you can turn off and put away when you're done. And in the sense that we don't, obviously there are things that we have to read between the lines, um, but there's generally not a lot of non verbal cues and stuff and tone of voice there's tone in the in the words but it's still for a lot of us I think an easier social field to access um but then I think as well a lot of us are chronically ill um like myself I have fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue so being able to connect with people online when I'm able to even if it's from bed is a huge asset as well I know you talk about on your blog, Seeking Sarah was a way of coming out to Uh friends and family. What has the feedback been from them? And are they reading your blog as often as I am? (laughs) I don't know. How often are you reading it? (laughs) I think I've read every one of your blog posts at this point. sure that out there somewhere is somebody that I know that's had a negative (laughs) reaction but fortunately they have not told me overall I would say it's been really fabulous because I think people now don't take things personally so for example if I need to cancel an event they're they're not so much you know oh she canceled again I guess she doesn't want to go I think it they see it more as like, oh, I wonder if she had like a bad sensory day or something. Um, So I would say my communication has improved as well because I don't have to come up with a lie. I can just be like, I I can't today and I'm really sorry. I want to go, but I can't. And then I actually ended up doing interviews with people for, um, I think it was my one year, was it? No, I guess it wasn't quite a year of blogging, but I did do a series of interviews, and one of them was with new friends that I met in the last few years. One was with high school friends, then I interviewed my husband, and then the final interview, I interviewed my parents. Um, And that was really because I was looking for a bit more direct feedback because here and there, like people have been like, you know, I've learned a lot from your blog or even 
I'm wondering if I might be autistic because of what I read or, you know, oh, I, I work in a library and a child came in with sensory needs and I was able to help him. So I've gotten a lot of that great feedback, but I hadn't really gotten feedback about me, if that makes sense. Um, so I asked them questions like, uh, what were some of your initial thoughts when I told you I'm autistic? Or how has your perception of me changed? Um, what do you notice about me now? And things like, what positive changes have you seen? And is there anything that makes more sense to you now? Yada, yada. Um, so the questions change for each interview, but I was very touched by a lot of the answers, especially um, from like new friends that didn't really know me that much, but were really compassionate about their answers. Um, so far, so good. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've been very privileged and um, blessed with the reactions overall. Now, if there are people listening who are thinking about writing a blog, can you tell them what has been the positive impact for you in writing Seeking Sarah? Oh my gosh, yeah. I mean, my entire life is different now. 99% um, of that is uh, completely positive. I don't feel isolated nearly as often. I don't feel like things are like a shaken Coke bottle inside my chest anymore. There's always a place where I can go and rant, like my, <laughs> my most recent blog posts about... Um, someone reacting badly to me coming out to them about being autistic. There's a, there's a healthy place for me to explore who I am authentically and connect with other people who might be feeling the same thing. So I, I am so glad that I took that leap and pushed publish and didn't really look back because I can't really imagine what my life would be like if I hadn't done that. Well, Sarah, I really appreciated the conversation. Thanks Thank so you. much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode, and thank you to Sarah for the conversation. I really enjoyed when Sarah was talking about how she looks at her five pillars and how they can help to deal with stressful situations in her life. That type of visual structured approach could be really helpful to many others. To read more about the five pillars, visit Sarah's blog, SeekingSarah174.com, and that information can be found in the description of this episode. Modern life can be challenging for anyone. When you're autistic, the world isn't designed with your unique traits in mind, and everyday demands can feel insurmountable. At Autism Personal Coach, we celebrate neurodiversity by empowering adults and teens to be the best versions of their authentic selves. The people we serve are the real experts. We're here to help their goals become a reality. To get an autism coach for a loved one or yourself, just email us at autismpersonalcoach at yahoo.com or call 216-336-5889 and request a coach today. On the next episode of Autism Stories, we will talk with Carissa Johnson about the positive impacts of gymnastics for autistic people. Talk to you then.
everyone around us has said that we've improved, taking longer to study, longer to learn. It also takes us longer. Our actions are different. 